Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Good morning, can you hear me? So somewhere I heard that you're supposed to start a talk with a joke, right? Oh, here it is. And um, I received an uh, email from a group of high school friends and it said jokes and that gave me the idea Oh, I'm supposed to start the talk with the joke. And then the second thought was, um, well, the joke wouldn't apply to my talk, so I can't give it. And then it did. And this is from an Amish ad newspaper that had uh, ads for horses, ponies, stud services, farm equipment, honey, and maple syrup supplies. I decided to take up meditation. It beats sitting around all day doing nothing. So that's the joke. And then uh, some of you were um, at Zazen Friday morning and Joel uh, read the quote for the day, but someone had stolen Friday. So we don't know what that was, but this is Saturday's quote that he read by Thomas Merton. And I thought it really applied to what I might say today. Buddhist meditation, but above all that of Zen, seeks not to explain, but to pay attention, to become aware, and to be mindful. In other words, to develop a certain kind of consciousness that is above and beyond deception by verbal formulas or by emotional excitement. Okay. So really the thing I want to talk about is, is not knowing. And um, my investigation into this koan that I'm going to read in a few minutes is uh, been really about not knowing. And I like best the Chinese version of the koan, which is uh, Buddha picks flower, Kashapa smiles, because there's more not to know there. But the koan as it's, it's typically given is, is here. Once, when the world honored one in ancient times was upon Vulture Peak, he held up a flower before the assembly of monks. At this, all were silent. The vulnerable Kashapa alone broke into a smile. The world honored one said, I have the all-pervading eye of the true dharmas, the secret heart of incomparable nirvana, the true aspect of formless form. It does not rely on letters and is transmitted outside the sutras. I now hand it on 
Maha Kashapa. You'll see that um, Maha is just mean great. And so sometimes he's called that and sometimes he's called just Kashapa. The commentary. Golden face Kudan is certainly outrageous. Kudan is another word for Buddha. He turns the noble into the lowly, sells dog flesh, advertises sheep head, though with some genius. However, supposing that at the time all the monks had smiled, how would the all-included eye of the true Dharma have been handed on? Who would have been Buddha's successor? Or again, if Kashapa had not smiled, how could he have been entrusted with it? If you say that the true Dharma can be handed on, the golden-faced old man with his loud voice deceived the simple villagers. If you say it can't be transmitted, why did Buddha say he had handed it to Kashapa? And then there's a verse. And what's so great about the commentary and the verses, and we every Monday night we read we read these uh, koans and commentaries and verses. Well, we don't, there's not, actually there's not verses in what we read, but the nice thing about the commentary is it makes you more confused. So where you think you understood something, you go someplace else. Holding up a flower, the snake shows its tail. Kashapa smiles and people and divas are confounded. And I have a little bit from a poem that's been with me since high school in um, by Emily Dickinson, Success is Counted Swedish, Swe Sweetest. To comprehend a nectar requires sorest need. So we have this, um, to comprehend a nectar requires sorest need. We have this uh, thing in us where we like to understand and so we can dismiss things. And as I was sitting today, I had lots of thoughts. One was, wouldn't it be neat to give a Dharma talk with no uh, plan whatsoever? And it made me think of Buckminster Fuller, who I got to hear a few times when I was in college. And he, um, he would come and talk, and he claimed that his talks were his thinking. So there was no planning and they would go on and on. They would start maybe in the morning and go on till midnight. And at the beginning, it would be a full auditorium. And by the end, there would be three or four people. And I never made it to the end. So I'm not saying that, but, um, but anyway, that was Buckminster Fuller. So that's my goal in life is to give a Dharma talk with completely no plan. Um, so I have another saying here that I have on my desk the fire, from the Fireside Theater. And this is from um, 2019, Tuesday, October 1st. So I think it might have been our, um, you know, when we still did, when we had quotes, but it was a littler calendar. And it says, everything you know is wrong. So that's been an important one to me. And then, um, In the Bodhisattva vow at the end of each line, we say, Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. And this idea of embodied, I think, links with what Thomas Burton said was 
experiencing it. So uh, I'm going to put this stuff away now. So as I was sitting, I was looking at the um, by the doorway. There's a little piece of calligraphy that means one. Can you guys see it? And it's a single stroke. I was thinking about one of my first drawings, which is, uh, you know, part of my ancient twisted karma. I was, it was maybe in the third or fourth grade and I was coming down the stairways and a woman had a uh, beige leather jacket on and it was the type of jacket that didn't have sleeves. I can see it very clearly, and it was a really inviting surface. And I had a blue ballpoint pen, and I drew a long line down on her jacket. It came down, and then it swept around, and then like that. And it reminded me of this um, calligraphy. And, um, and I think my parents had to pay to have her jacket cleaned. I remember that. And then at our 20th college reunion, I went up to her and I apologized profusely for drawing on her jacket. You know, I'm doing my first drawing there. And um, she didn't have any memory at all of it. And she said she never even had a jacket like that. So I'm still looking for that person who was the recipient of my first drawing. And um, but then in college, Going back a little from the 20th reunion, I had a wonderful uh, painting teacher who talked about the skin, the paper as the skin, or the leather, and then the drawing as the mark. And um, I've always been curious about who made my drawings. Um, I recently came across, across in Judaism that it's God that gives us our thoughts. And I feel more like I do the writing in my pieces, but someone else does the drawings. Oh, so here's the curious thing. Um, yesterday or the day before I got an email from, her name was Michelle, or I thought her that was her, uh, Michelle's husband, that Michelle had passed away. and. Uh, he said she died of a stroke. It was completely unexpected. And as I was sitting, I was thinking of, you know, stroke, drawing, Michelle. Who could it have been that I drew on their back? Um, so I don't know any of those things. But, um, you know, as I look now at this drawing, this calligraphy, I'll think about the stroke and think about Michelle. And um, 
I wrote to her husband, didn't write about this. That would have been too confusing, I think. But anyway, um, so that, that was the stroke. And um, I had, so after I give my talk, if you want to ask the question, I can um, tell you the answer. Oh, about um, why don't we know anything? And I was thinking too about my sister who, who died and we simply say, um, you know, she died of cancer. And then my other sister died from drinking. And we, we somehow, after we have that explanation, we can just put this thing aside, can't we? And it's, it's, it makes us more comfortable, but it's not really get, getting to the truth. And I remember one time in depth and practice when we were meeting here at Appamata, there was a, a Indian who uh, had a great deal of experience in Buddhism. And he kept talking about how the cause of death was birth. And I hadn't heard that, you know, until that. And, and, um, and then that took me as I was sitting, sorry, this is a little bit rambling, but that's the way I am. Um, when I was sitting, it took me a little bit to uh, how people go back to Genesis as being the beginning. And that's why, in fact, that's according to the Torah, why we die is because we didn't obey God. And some say it was the original sin and others say it was what made we us humans. So uh, I don't have an answer there. So now I'm going to show my pieces. And these are the pieces from the last month. So the first talk was the first month and then was was the first 30 pieces or so and now there's been 23 or 26 more and i promised my wife that i wouldn't swear as i'm going to get these um in front of you she claimed i said a lot more words than i i think i did so that's linda 728609 if you want to see her but she's just a a number and a name okay so let's see first i go screen share then i go here then i go here then i go view then i go here Can you see my drawings? Great. This is a fun one for me because um, in terms of uh, who does these drawings and the upside down figures was totally a computer accident. There's a wonderful photographer, Jerry Yilsman, and he talks about how we just, when we're making art, we make ourselves available to things that happen. So I don't know how that happened. And this is about sympathetic joy versus jealousy. How did the reject rejected monks feel 
that they weren't chosen to be Buddha's successor? Did they feel joy for Kashyapa? Maybe that's not quite what one feels for a patriarch. He's taken on a job to benefit all. Maybe gratitude would be more fitting. They weren't exactly rejected as I was when someone walked my girlfriend home. I was so angry. If I was a bigger person, maybe I would feel joy that this person would be in the presence of this, my lovely 12-year-old crush with flaming red hair. But no, I was so angry I started yelling at the two of them. 62 years later, I'm still yelling. I felt rejected. Is that how the monks felt? Was failure in their minds? Better yet, if anything but sympathetic joy was in their minds, were they really ready for the task at hand to continue Buddha's work? So you see the word smile there. And my daughter had asked me to do a painting for her just with the word smile. And I never finished it. It's still in my room. I started it maybe, um, you know, 10 years ago, but, and it's, it's not big. It's just this big. I don't know why I didn't finish it, but anyway, that seems like such an important thing. And what I noticed um, in the last month is just how that changes one's perspective, just to smile. So I'm wondering if everyone, just for a moment, could smile. Thanks, Rosemary. Thanks, Nancy. Thanks, Bill and John. Those are just the people I'm seeing, but I'm sure you're all smiling. Can you feel the, the difference in your body? In fact, I. I heard a podcast from a neurophysiologist, psychologist, something like that. And she was saying that the main evolutionary purpose of the brain was to regulate the body. So you smile and your body gets regulated, something changes. Something changes. And there is actually a meditation technique where you're actually smiling. But if you're ever feeling down, just smile, and it, it goes away. It, you can't do both at the same time for some reason, or I can't. I've been assuming that Buddha chose Kashapa. Then this morning I saw that Kashapa already was his successor, and Buddha just acknowledged that. Or maybe I could have said, just saw that. And then I remembered the koan about the wind and the flag, and the question arising whether the flag moves the wind or the wind moves the flag. In the end, we are told, not the flag, not the wind. Mind is moving. I went from there to lighting a candle. What really lights what? What catches on fire? In a sense, it takes two to tangle. The flower koan is not about one person crowning another, but rather about a special entanglement where magic occurs. My dad lied to me. So funny how we can't uh, give this stuff up, even after 50 years. Even if it's a very, very small thing. I had been bugging him about whether he had got, done something 
and to get me off his case, he said he had done it, and then I discovered he hadn't. My my dad had a good imagination, and he would he would um, you never knew what if he was saying. In fact, when he first met my mother, he told her uh, that his dad had a harem, and she said, "Oh, you know," and that was the beginning of their uh, long long uh, marriage. And then I discovered he hadn't. I was furious. Maybe I still haven't forgiven him, but it, it has been over 50 years ago. Then there is the flower sermon. Someone at our temple was quite angry at Buddha for passing over the monks who had worked so hard to study the Dharma. What is the difference between how we respond to something that happened in our life and how we respond to what is probably a fiction from thousands of years ago? How is it that it wrenches our emotions the same, whether it is fact or fiction? And as, as I was reading these over yesterday, I was thinking about this really makes art possible, that we can have the same emotion that we would have from a, let's say, from an other kind of life experience. So, and, and I once asked my aunt, who was a therapist, I said, does it really matter if we were talking about sexual abuse of of people when they were kids. And I said, wouldn't it be good if we had a videotape so we could see whether it really happened? There was a time when there were in the news, you know, cases where people thought they were abused and weren't. And she said, no, it doesn't matter whether it happened or not. And that allows us to be able to read fiction. It's just as real as if this actually happened to us. And we have to deal with it as if it did. So how is it that Buddha, one of the greatest teachers of all times, only connected to one student of 80,000? Or how about Socrates, an equally great teacher, who was put to death for corrupting the youth? Many of the koans can be seen as failures in students getting it. How would the student evaluations read when Nanshan kills the cat after begging his monks to say a, a word of Zen that they cannot do? What would they have said about Nanshan, the mean cat killer? And then there is Van Gogh, who during his lifetime was unable to create a following. Now we see him as one of the greatest artists, yet so many didn't see that. To be great is to be misunderstood, said Emerson. What bravery it is to go out on a limb and hold up a flower. What's, what's fun about these little dots that you see is uh, they're purely accidental. And when my um, scanner gets dirty, those are little particles of dust, and then I take them all and I enlarge them. So many pixels, and they become circles. And sometimes there's, they, if you look carefully, I don't know if you can see it, but there's lighter ones and darker. I mean, there's whiter ones and grayer ones. Um, I'm really curious about what in a particle of dust would make it finally render like that when it's enlarged. So they're gifts to me. I make so many assumptions. If another monk instead of Kashapa had smiled, would he have become Buddha's successor? If Kashapa had done something besides a faint smile, would he still have become Buddha's successor? I've heard that there is a book that explains all the koans. 
Yet, I've been also told that if you gave the answer to a teacher, they wouldn't know. They would know that you didn't get it yet. It seems the way I contend with situations is by making a vast array of assumptions, you know, and also like answers, like, why did my sister die? Oh, she had cancer. Oh, that, oh, oh I understand. Suppose I add nothing to what I know that Buddha picked up a flower and that Kashapa smiled. Because these events were sequential, I believe one caused the other. Even that may be a story. This is who is disturbed. Um, I had an uncle, a great uncle, who was a rabbi. And he also, uh, this was in the 20s, he wrote a book, This Believing World, that actually I just gave to Monica. Um, and when he studied the world religions, he realized they were so similar that he gave up being a rabbi. And he had this idea, he had this idea of one, of one. So Marcus Aurelius, a Roman, wrote that disturbance comes only from within our own perceptions. We create them. I'm trying to know what the 79,999 monks were thinking as they were passed over for a job for which they might have been perfectly suited. I hear Marcus telling me that I've created this disturbance in my own psyche. In fact, I feel compassion for those guys who were glossed over. My uh, sister, the one who died of cancer, um, was a psychoanalyst. And she only gave me one piece of advice that I can remember in her whole life. And that was, Kim, you don't have any problems. And it's 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 a koan that I'm going to have to work with all my life, but um, it goes with what Marcus Aurelius says, that the disturbance that we have comes within our own perceptions. I can rationalize crazy stuff like Buddha just passed them over because he wanted to give them a teaching. But again, that's a story I've created. How does one move forward when they don't really know a damn thing? What's left if there is nothing more than self-created disturbances? That's the question. I have to turn off the, um, no, I can't do that. I mean, that's the question for today, but I'm getting the uh, transcription, which is fine to leave on, but um, it, it makes it hard to see the last word. Someone mentioned the word understanding this morning. A week ago, someone asked why I put X's on elbows and kneecaps. I've been doing it for so long, I really don't remember if I had a reason originally. Though, as I think about it now, that teacher who talked about marks and skins, he also said you have to tie the marks to the skin. And those X's are one way that I do that. So we, when we do drawings, we try not to have the drawing float off the page, but be, be part of the page. 
In fact, one thing he said that I, I loved was um, all space is a variation of densities. So there's not like foreground and background. It's, it's all just a variation. The holding up of the flower and Kashyapa's smile display a mirror so that I can see myself and my misunderstandings. Maybe so much of school wasn't very interesting because it was just an accumulation of answers. What do we do with boundless awe, that which we can admire, but can't understand or even define? How does knowing open up our world rather than close it down? How does not knowing open up our world rather than close it down? The flower opens up in her prime, Yet I can't believe that Kashyapa wasn't seen, that life and death are of supreme importance, which I'll say as part of the service later. His smile was not being touched by the beauty of the flower, but rather by the realization of its impermanence. I noticed I was worrying and then I smiled. It was as if I had a new body. I could feel different chemistry rushing around. I looked at the bowing mat by the altar and smiled at it as if it was a newborn baby. Then I saw and spoke to each of the Zafus waiting for our return to the Zendo. See them behind me. I kept smiling as I switched to the gallery view and saw a grid of people, each challenged by the trials and tribulations of their lives. As I smiled at them, I shared their pain. Bless them, I thought. And then I remembered Kashyapa smiling at the flower. Perhaps he didn't know he was smiling. Now, some, in some things I read, it, it's a faint smile and no teeth are showing. Perhaps he does nothing but smile, even in his sleep. Did the other monks even see his smile? I keep imagining that he was in the front row, but I have no reason to, to uh, think that, so they wouldn't have seen it. But they must have heard the birds sing and the clouds dance when Kashaba's face lit up, lit up. It was such a simple smile, and yet it was a smile that went around the world, not just 2,500 years ago, but every moment since then. This was not the smile that said to Buddha, cool move, dude. Rather, it was an affirmation of life, of beauty, of love. It was a whole story reflected in a faint smile. That's why Buddha chose Kashapa as his successor. Though Buddha was enlightened in one night, I think it is a misconception that all our thoughts and realizations, that all thoughts and realizations were in his head from that point forward. When he told his disciples that monks needed a robe, he was asked what the robe should look like. He looked down at the rice field and said, like that. So I assume he didn't initially have that vision until asked. It came as a subsequent thought. So might it be with the thought of needing a successor. Maybe it came as he woke up in the morning, then walking to Deer Park, we've, we, what I read, it wasn't Deer Park, to give a talk, a flower caught his eye and his fingers plucked it from the ground. One thing led to another. He held up the flower. Do we know his intention then? We can only guess. 
This is a story about the creative process. One thing leads to another and soon to a third. At an Abbott ceremony I attended, the senior teachers, except one, seemed quite concerned with who was looking at them. There was one teacher from Japan who was not concerned at all. Actually, that was Suzuki Roshi's son. He was sitting as if he was alone, as if sitting without moving his head by a slow moving creek. And um, my wife did a, a tea ceremony at, at, in the college in San Marcos, and there was a Japanese person who was the guest. And she too, the entire uh, time as they were preparing for the ceremony, sat in the chair and looked straight ahead. It was, it was really, there was so much happening in the room and she wasn't going like, like we often do. Any eagle within miles would know who Buddha would choose to be his successor. Kashapa could smile because he had no worries but he had no worries because he could smile. The others could learn from Kashapa's equanimity, but because they were so feverishly anticipatory, it might not be until another lifetime. Sen Soshitsu, AKA Hunshe, a contemporary tea master, tells the flower story a little differently. On the morning of Buddha's talk, a basket of flowers is given to Buddha by one of his monks. It is from this basket that Buddha picks one of the flowers, not from the ground. This gets into causes and conditions. We can't really plan our actions because we don't know what life will give us as the flowers were given to Buddha. Another factor here is that the first connection was between the giver, one of the monks, and Buddha, the receiver. From that mini transmission, one thing led to another and a successor was born. Life doesn't occur in a laboratory where the variables are controlled. Its conditions are ever changing and Buddha being awake makes the appropriate response. So here's the basket and the flowers. Even though I've been in school all my life, I detest training. The flower sermon could be seen as a treatise against training or maybe it is just a training for the unexpected. Buddha comes to give a talk, but he sees 80,000 monks minus one drowning in the Dharma. A basket of flowers is then given to him. What now is the appropriate response? Kashapa sees Buddha holding up the flower and immediately understands that this is the situation right now. He is not stuck like the rest of us in life as we want it to be. He simply responds to life as it is. This is the ultimate training. Why did Buddha pick? So each of these were uh, things that came to me as I was sitting. And after sitting in the morning, I would and do uh, write down, do the writing for these. Why did Kashapa pick Yak? So sometimes they're repetitive because I feel like I keep, I'm in a room and I can't find any doors and I keep pounding on the walls trying to see what, how to get out or how to get in. 
was he his favorite monk? He often wants to, we often want to pick our friends when filling a role, sometimes to the detriment of the institution. Buddha had one overriding goal, to end suffering. And I think that's really important that we have to keep right, reminding no matter what. Um, I heard that in relationship to, to Nagarjuna, that his main goal wasn't to be like great philosopher of all time, it was to end suffering. And that makes things, or Budo at one point picks up a whole bunch of leaves and says, I could talk about many things, but I want to talk about this. He wants to just end suffering. That's what he needs to do. That's his role as a bodhisattva. The means was to continue the spread of the Dharma. We have to believe that picking Kashapa was solely for that task, to keep the Dharma alive. Kashapa, if he was ready for the job, must have realized that being a successor is more of a task than an honor. And the other monks, hopefully, would realize, too, that Kashapa was the one for the job. He would need their support. In fact, Subhadda did not support the Dharma after Buddha's uh, Parabana and had to be set straight in the first council. In the first council, all the monks got together and they reviewed what Buddha had taught. A prisoner wrote that he didn't want to be in jail. I was surprised imagining that most 10 year olds know what behaviors will put them behind bars. Likewise, there is a Jewish midrash that the Torah was actually written when the world was created. And Moses knew the whole story before he started on the 40 year journey. Yet he made serious errors like hitting a rock rather than speaking to it. Think spouse abuse. Buddha was trained to see the future. As much as I want to believe that he was responding in the moment to Kashapa, he could see that Kashapa would ensure the Dharma's longevity. My Buddhist pen pal didn't avoid prison, nor did Moses avoid his, his demise of not getting into the promised land. But Buddha was able to pick a successor to keep the Dharma alive. In 1968, a photo showed five of us hanging out somewhere on a deserted road in the Midwest. Two were in a car that had been cut in half. I was sitting on a log and French fry and someone else were standing. I've been thinking about me on that log. Am I him? Who is he anyway? I think I remember how I saw him back then. And now more than 50 years later, I realize how little self-confidence I had. In fact, what does it mean when I say that was me. Buddha said, I am, I am the teacher supreme. I alone am a perfectly enlightened one. If I wore a t-shirt with those words, people would roll on the ground laughing. How was it that Buddha could say such things about himself? Was his self-image off as was mine, but in a different direction? It takes chutzpah to hold up a flower and give a sermon worthy of 80,000 disciples. I thought I was barely worthy of sitting on a log. I so wondered how Buddha not only had it figured out, but knew that he had it figured out, really knew. Now I'm sitting on that same log, wondering what's next, really wondering if I have any idea who I am, not unlike when I, what I wondered 50 years ago. That's me sitting on the log 
And what's strange is I remember, uh, I remember that urge to sit on the log from so many years ago. But I can't get into my head. And that's interesting too. Mr. and Mrs. To Be Kim, it was a Korean couple and their last name was Kim, got married in our backyard. It was my first wedding to photograph. Alas, I used the wrong shutter speed with a flash and a focal plane shutter and all the pictures were cut in half. In the flower sermon, 79,999 of the monks were drowning in the Dharma. They did not have beginner's mind. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the experts, there are few. As spoken by Suzuki Roshi, the Buddha didn't follow the script and they were lost. The drowning monks weren't bad. They were just at a different point on their journey. As I was and am messing up my first wedding gig. Is where they were, where they needed to be, they simply weren't ready for the successor gig as I was half ready for the wedding photography, photographer gig. Ha ha, I thought, at the flower sermon, ex-monks were drowning in the dharma, and I am not, and I am not. Herman Hesse Siddhartha meets the Buddha on the road and does not follow him. Hesse himself was not enamored with Buddhism. Ninth century Zen master Linji said, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Buddha said, I have no words, and yet Buddhist books are published one after the other. All, are they all for naught? What really is the teaching? How does one become awakened if not from the Dharma? Why do we study the Dharma if it is empty? She said I was a flower. I said, that's sweet. She said she didn't mean it like that. I said that the flower is birth and life and death. She nodded. I hadn't considered being the flower. And one of the things we do as we look at koans, koans is to figure out who we are in the koan. Are we uh, one of the characters? Are we an onlooker? Are we an animal? Are we the dirt? She nodded. I hadn't considered being the flower. I was either dr the drowning monks or at rare moments, Kashapa, never Buddha. Wait until tomorrow's peace. There's that side of the flower where it is at its peak of beauty and vigor. But there is another side to the flower where it shines, emulating life itself, beautiful in its impermanence. As William Blake wrote, he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. I am a flower, but not like the ones in the flower store. I'm in the recycle bin to be made into fine dirt. So this is, can be read either look mono tears or look ma comma no tears. Empathy versus compassion. And we've had a lot of talks here at Avamata about the difference between the two and a lot of uh, different ideas on that. Tears versus smile. If Kashapa had felt empathy for the poor impermanent flower, he would have had tears in his eyes. Instead, there was a compassionate smile. 
maybe even an expression of sympathetic joy for you, Miss Flower, at the height of your beauty and as well, you get to become something or other over and over and over again for the rest of eternity. Yes, the smile was for you, Miss Flower, as you were held by Mr. Buddha. I felt at this point that I had stepped into the clearing with the others in the koan, you know, rather than looking at it from the outside. And here I went a little mad, I think. I figured out the koan this morning. And I, I've done that before. Uh, and then the big problem is how will I go on? What do I tell other people? It, it's a terrible um, thing to happen to you. Then driving home from the grocery store, I saw that my story about the flower was just my story, not the koans. Reading Plato's cave allegory today, I realized the koan is not visible. Only its shadows are visible. The mind can conceive of the meaning of the koan, but cannot see it. We can only see the shadows cast by the koan itself. My mistake is mistaking the shadow for the koan. Today I'm feeling down about my cockroach that died, about friends who are ill, and about my own mortality. So I feel compassion for the flower. And now driving home, I realize I'm just looking at the reflection of my grief in a mirror. So here, what I thought was my understanding was actually just looking at myself. It was not silent when Buddha said no words. There were birds and monkeys and crickets and wind. And there were the grunts of 79,000 monks when he held up the flower. The difference was that the sound emulated from everywhere rather than from somewhere. It was in fact noisy, noisy that is, until Kashapa smiled. At that, you could hear a pin drop. An electrical encounter occurred between Buddha and Kashapa, just like when Ben Franklin flew his kite on that stormy night. And I wrote that, I think, when we were having the storms. In what might be the most important part of the Diamond Sutra, Buddha puts on his patched robe, picks up his bowl, heads for the capital, begs for alms, eats his rice, puts his bowl and robe away, washes his feet, sits down on a seat, crosses his legs, adjust his body, and then turns his awareness to what is in front of him. So that was the form. In my mind, it is then that one of the ex-monks brings to him a basket of flowers. He looks out, sees that many are drowning in the Dharma, picks up one of the flowers with his fingers and holds it up. And Kashapa smiles. One simple act followed another. Each simple act is the appropriate response to what preceded it. So if someone asks me the question about why we are so fooled by explanations, I'll tell you. But I can't hear anyone. Why is that, Kim? Is that Nelda? It is. Oh. Well, D.H. Lawrence wrote something that I think really explains 
for me, and that is that there's ideas and experiences, and we tend to take things that happen and make them into ideas and organize them and put them into pigeonholes, and they're really experiences which are beyond explanation. And that's why he and Sartre and other people did their best explanations in fiction, you know, or art or, or here. And these, these ideas, which seems to be a lot of what school is about is ideas are very easily handled, but they're not the real deal. So, so, uh, you know, in the long version of the koan I read you, um, you can say, oh, well, the Dharma really isn't about words, it's about silence, it's about knowing things, you know, and you can then sleep at night. But that's not really re responding to the, to the experience of it. The experience is what I'm starting to get into where I'm walking into the clearing with them. Yeah. Is that comparable to something I heard once, Kim, where um, it was suggested that if a child is with us and points to a flower, that, that we recognize it a as a rose, that the proper answer is not that's a rose, but we call that a rose because we really don't know what it is. Yes. And, and what's re really cool is, is when... Um, According to Genesis, when the world was created, God gave man the job, the job of naming things. Mm -hmm. That making things and naming them, naming is making them ideas in a way, as opposed to experiences. Like, so I put everything here. Now you name it, you know, you, you kind of almost kill it. In fact, I was thinking when I was sitting about how that is one of the precepts, do not kill is, is actually naming and making things ideas and putting boundaries around them. Thank you. Thank you. Can I say something? Yes, Maria. Um, yeah, um, I was just thinking about confusion and koans. And I was thinking about something that um, Edward Murrow always used to say. And he used to say, anyone who isn't confused doesn't understand the situation. And, and it's always kind of stayed with me. And I think with koans, they, they create, for me anyway, like I think I know something and then they create this confusion. And it's kind of like, almost like confusion's a way of turning the head off to give the body a chance to kind of really see. And, 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 and that kind of not knowing, getting us into that not knowing place. I mean, because as soon as we know something, there's no way forward. We're stuck, we're rigid. So I think the confusion is, is gives the koans give us that confusion to give us the opportunity for our bodies to really begin to feel, sense and see something beyond thought. There is a place, there is a place outside. So William Blake had this like sequence where we go from innocence to experience to organize innocence. So there is says not knowing is intimacy in the koan. So there is this intimacy is an organized innocence. So it's not when you recognize not knowing, it's okay. 
because then you, you have found something you can kind of hold it like I don't know any of you and when I really get that within me then I can you know then we can have a connection if I think I know you then that doesn't work right if I think I know myself that doesn't work so yeah thanks Edward R. Murrow <laughs> And then we think we know somebody and as soon as we decide that we know somebody that's it we don't give them opportunity to change or to grow they're stuck within us in yeah. a certain frame and as soon as we kind of release a person from our knowing them we then allow space for for that for us to really see that person and for that and to appreciate the changes that happen every second every hour every day i'm not the same person i was an hour ago there's something different about me somehow after listening to your talk, something's changed. Something always changes. And and who you might have thought I was yesterday or you know, how I was put together might be very differently organized today because of one thing that could enter my system and change everything. And I think that's what koans do. Uh, Becky. Yeah, I, I quite agree with what Maria was saying in terms of, of koans for a long time it took me a, a while i mean it really took a while for me to figure out why are people doing this you know it's like that they're they're putting out things and then they go and get a whole lot of books that tell them what they mean because they couldn't make sense of it and they read them to each other as the you know it it just was like i couldn't quite understand what y'all were doing at all you know it's like what i mean i i guess I guess the thing is, and, and certainly I like to embrace the fact that I sort of figured out something, that I understand it. It's comforting. But I don't see how we could look at the whole history of mankind and what we've traced in terms of our, our thinking and our evolution, our perception of, of how the world works, how the body works, how any of that, and think that we know anything. We'd... All we have is what, you know, Trudy the bag lady in, in uh, the play that Lily Tomlin did, uh, the search for um, the search for intelligent and intelligence in the universe. Well, there's this bag lady, Trudy, and one of her commentaries on things that I really quite agree with is that reality is nothing but a collective hunch. <laughs> And, and I, I really think that, that, that we can't know anything. All we can really do is try to figure out how to carry on our, our life, knowing we don't know and we're doing the best we can. That's what I think. Yeah, I love it how every time you talk, it's a Dharma talk. <laughs> it, you know that place that your pictures come from? I've, I've sort of felt like there's a lot of things that just fall from the sky. And there's something about being with y'all that sometimes I open my mouth and I don't know who's talking even exactly, but it, I'm, I'm quite certain it fell from the sky. <laughs> I, I quite like the, um, I love the flower thing. And I used to think the flower kind of epitomized, you know, life and death, like physically. 
but the more I've kind of gone through the this journey is kind of like the way that you know ideas and beliefs and everything that we hold within us it's like you know and then we fruition to this lovely beautiful flower and then it all decays everything that we think and we know and we think we understand decays and then it all goes away for a year like there's this fertile emptiness that Kyle Rogers used to call it where nothing really happens and then another bud comes up and the flower comes up and something else blossoms and we think we've really got it again and then it all starts to close down again and goes away for a while and again and again and again and that's why I love that flower the 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 flower image that you created and shared with us. I think the um, purpose of the uh, us having a spiritual friendship is telling each other, you don't have it yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's not it. That's not it. That's not it. So in respectful, being respectful of the time, we should do service now. I really appreciate all of you being here. <laughs>